the National Archives podcast series, Titanic Lives. The offices and crew of RMS Titanic, presented by James Cronin. Thank you all for coming. I feel I might have got you here, hopefully though not, on slightly false pretenses, because this talk is not so much about the Titanic itself. A great deal has been written about that, and far more eloquently than I can put it. Rather, it's about the lives involved in the event, the impact of the tragedy upon their families and upon the community in Southampton. This talk is also an attempt to relate less talked about aspects of the story, such as the recovery of the bodies, the reporting of the event in local press, and attempts to raise money to support those left destitute by the tragic loss of life. To do so, I will use my great-grandfather, Frederick Woodford, as a case study. Looking at his life, and his family, and what happened to them in the aftermath of the sinking. So, hopefully for the family historians among you, I know, I'm sure that you'll enjoy this case study and the research involved. And for Titanic fans, uh, hopefully there will also be enough here to pique your interest. While it's the lives involved that interests me, what is it about Titanic that continues to fascinate? For some, it's the fact that the Titanic was a microcosm of society. The ship carried millionaires in great luxury, such as John Jacob Astor, but also all 11 members of the Sage family, who had sold up everything in search of a new start in the new world, running a small farm. All 11 died. For others, it's the splendour of the Titanic. She was the largest passenger steamer of her day, and perhaps the most sumptuous, equipped with the latest technological devices, yet furnished, with all that civilised luxury that could, could require. Her amenities included a swimming pool, palm courts, a Turkish bath, a gymnasium, Some of the first-class suites were even fitted out as period rooms in the style of Robert Adam or Louis XV. For others, it's her statistics. Titanic was a triple-screw steamer of 46,329 tonnes, launched in 1912. Built for the White Star Line by Harland and Wolfe of Belfast at a cost of some one and a half million, she was to operate their passenger service between Southampton and New York. She was 882 feet, nine inches long, 92 feet 6 inches wide and 104 feet high. From bow to stern, she was longer than the tallest building yet conceived. And a lot of their publicity at the time, and you may have seen some postcards of this, have Titanic vertically up against the Empire State Building and showing her dwarfing the Empire State Building. Yesterday, in a local pub, I told a regular who happens to work at the Kew Bridge Steam Museum that I was going to be talking about the Titanic and about my great-grandfather, who was in the engine rooms. For him... That was the fascination. I wish I could have seen those engines and boilers, he replied. Titanic had eight triple expansion engines, with steam being supplied via 159 furnaces. A vast amount of coal was necessary. For others, it's the blend of technology and arrogance. While White Star Line never directly made the claim that she was unsinkable, they would undoubtedly have thought it. She had a double-bottomed skin, and her hull was divided into 16 separate airtight compartments. It would take at least five of these compartments to flood in order to sink the ship. And that would need an unpredicted catastrophe. It's partly because of this that there was insufficient lifeboats for the number of passengers she was carrying. They didn't actually consider the crew as a number of passengers for lifeboats for passengers. It should be said that with 20 lifeboats capable of carrying 1,178 persons, it fulfilled If it filled the capacity, uh, Titanic more than fulfilled the Board of Trade regulations and requirements for the period. However, additional lifeboats, as well as being viewed as unnecessary, would have altered the sleek and beautiful appearance of the liner, and the Titanic was designed as a showcase. These are, courtesy of Harland and Wolfe, the deck plans themselves. 
And interestingly, it has decks A to G, and then a lower all op deck, and well, all op deck and a lower all op deck or tank top. This A to G you'll see mirrored later on in our story. And it's very interesting the way that some of these things come back to replicate themselves. Let me take you on a quick journey. Wednesday, April 10th. Titanic's maiden voyage begins at noon, and the sailing hour draws near. After years of advanced publicity, and with the sheer size and elegance of its liners, White Star has at last created the spectacle it desires. Throughout the morning, Southampton fills with sightseers. The waterfront is lined with onlookers and well-wishers. Photographers and news reporters are everywhere. Anticipation hangs tangibly. At 10 a.m., White Star's chartered boat train from Waterloo Station pulls up next to Titanic. In addition to travelers from London, the train also carries people from Liverpool whose ships have been docked by the coal strike. All begin to board the ship from special gangways that connect directly to the railway carriages. Titanic's range of passengers is like a cross-section of the Edwardian society that has made her possible. Whether they are magnets and heirs happy to spend thousands of pounds on a transatlantic jaunt, or humble people who have earned their passage to America and the shops and mills of the wealthy, all are ready to entrust their lives to Titanic for the next At the stroke of noon on Wednesday, April 10th, Titanic's huge steam whistle bellows. Her lines are cast off, and she eases away from her berth. Passengers crowd the deck rails to wave their jubilant farewells to those on the dock. Photographers click away wildly. One newsman is thoroughly impressed. The vision of the great liner as she moved away from Southampton Quay forms an imperishable memory. She looks so colossal and so queenly. Five tugboats lead Titanic through the channel of the river test. History is being made. So we're on our journey. We set off on April the 10th. We'll be heading to Cherbourg then back uh, across to uh, Queenstown, now Cove in Cork, and then on to supposedly New York. And it's upon this voyage that my great-grandfather, Frederick Woodford, embarks. Here we see two photographs of him, one in merchant seaman's uniform uh, when he was on board a, a wooden barkentine, SS Christabel, he wasn't always on huge ships. This one plied its trade out of Faversham. I've yet to work out precisely how he ended up on that particular ship. Frederick Woodford was the son of Francis Woodford and Charlotte Woodford, they bound. He was one of 11 children. Francis had four children by his first wife, Eliza, and then the rest by Charlotte. And Frederick was the middle of those. He was born in Boulder on the edge of the New Forest, on the southern edge of the New Forest, at Norley Wood. We can see Frederick in the 1881 census, which a lot of you will be familiar with, with his father and mother and some of his siblings. And here's his birth certificate in 1871 at Norley. And this is where they lived on the verge of the New Forest. Uh, NOR 7 is their small holding, and this is their cottage. Now, we can tell from the few sources what ships Frederick had been on, at least a few of them. We know from that photograph that he was on the SS Christabel, looking very smart, I thought, in his uniform with his hat and official jumper. The 1911 census, which 
you'll visit in a moment, tells us that he was on the Atalanta. That was a liner tender operating out of Southampton docks owned by the London Southwestern Railway. According to Titanic's crew list, which always lists the previous ship and is a good way of tracing back an ancestor, his previous ship to that had been the Minnehaha. That was a large liner owned by the Atlantic Transport Line and usually operated from London through to New York. But in 1911, it had a collision and went into Southampton for repairs. And I think it's then that he got the occasion to travel to New York from Southampton upon the Minnehaha and what was to be his final ship, the Titanic. He appears on the crew list, which is very hierarchical. So you, have, you begin with the officers, you have the various other departments, so you have the victualling department, until you finally get to the engine department, and Frederick Woodford is there among the greasers, and we get certain details about him, an estimation of his age, where born and last ship. It's also from the crew lists and agreements that we get an address at 14 Clavelli Road, Newtown, Southampton. And we'll visit that shortly. It's whilst in Southampton that Frederick met Susan Anstey. This is my great-grandmother, who was actually born on Brownsea Island, off Poole in Dorset. Frederick and Susan married in April 1902. Her father, William Anstey, had died by then, but her mother had remarried George Pierce. This will come to play later on as well, we'll see, within the story. Also signing as witness is her sister, Charlotte Ann, or Annie. And it's that that brought Susan Anstey to Southampton. Her sister had already gone there and had married, and we find Susan in the census. By 1901, she'd travelled to Southampton to stay with her sister. And there are John and Annie, now Hodges, with Susan Anstey, who had found work as a domestic servant. Now, John was a merchant mariner, so I'd like to think that maybe uh, Susan got to meet her future husband through one of his merchant navy buddies, quite likely. On the 1911 census, they had moved to Clovelly Road. So Susan and Frederick are now married and are living in part of 14 Clovelly Road. They have two rooms. The two other rooms are occupied by her sister, Charlotte Anne, uh, and her brother-in-law, John Henry, and his children, and her mother, Elizabeth Pierce, who by now is widowed again. One of the things about the census is it tells you how many children they had, but also how many children had died. And Frederick and Susan had two sons, both of whom died in infancy, who were born earlier than my grandmother, Susan May Woodford, who was born in 1907. And then in 1911, aged just a few months old at the time, Annie Frieda. First son died very, very rapidly indeed, pretty much after childbirth. And their second son, William George, was only six months old when he died of bronchitis and convulsions for four hours in coma. So they were used to tragedy, but weren't quite yet prepared for further tragedy that would befall them. This picture, taken after the sinking of the Titanic, shows my great-grandmother with my grandmother and my great-aunt. That's one of the things that 
relief money from the Titanic Fund would have helped to produce things like that, so at least there are photographs there. Photography at the time was still a little bit of a luxury. It's something that uh, you would go to a studio and pose for, and so there might not necessarily, in certain families, be that many photographs in existence dating back. Let me take you back to the voyage. So that's Frederick's background. When the Titanic docked in Queenstown, Frederick sent a letter to his wife, and this is what it says. April the 11th, 1912, Queenstown. My darling wife, just a few lines to let you know that I'm pretty well, and I hope this will find you and the two girls all right. Well, my love, I'm sending you on the one-pound note and also the five-shilling one for last Tuesday, so you must go down on Monday and draw it. You must go down to the new road in the docks and you will see the white star line marked up there on the right, opposite the fire station and the American line shed. Well, my love, hoping this will find you quite well and all, I remain your loving husband, F.E. Woodford. Yes, little did you know, unfortunately. Again, what follows with the Titanic has been much written about, but one of the things that we can follow it through is the signals that were received by a ship, the SS Burma. These were produced for the Board of Trade Inquiry. And their first signal, received at 11.45 on April 14th, MGY is the code used by Titanic. All ships had a three-letter coding to identify themselves quickly for radio signals. So SOS from MGY, we have struck icebergs sinking fast, come to our assistance, and it gives their position. Burma replies, what's the matter with you? <laughs> so, so they reply again, okay, we've struck an iceberg and are sinking. Please tell Captain to come. Burma do respond, MGY, we're only 100 miles from you, sailing at 14, steaming at 14 knots. Be with you at, by 6.30. Now, unfortunately, 6.30 was going to be far too late. At 1.25, panic stations... OK, old man, they reply, but a quarter of an hour later, we are sinking fast, passengers being put into boats. And finally, the very last message sent by Jack Phillips, earnestly telegraphing to the very last minute, women and children in boats cannot last much longer. By 2.20pm, Titanic had completely foundered. So how was the news received in Southampton? We'll see this from a few headlines which my colleague is going to read out to. These are all taken from the Southern Daily Echo, a local newspaper for Hampshire and the region. The Southern Daily Echo. Tuesday, 16th of April, 1912. Consternation at Canute Road. Rarely, if ever, in the history of the Port of Southampton have such scenes been witnessed as were seen outside the offices of the White Star Line in Canute Road this morning where the following brief but pregnant message was posted. Titanic founded about 2.30 a.m. April 15th. About 675 crew and passengers picked up by ships, ships boats of Carpathia and California. Names of those saved will be posted as soon as received. Dismay and incredulity struggled for the mastery of the anxious crowd as they pressed forward to read the fateful bulletin for the ambiguity of the message and the absence of any direct mention of loss of life still held out hopes which the most optimistic eagerly clutched at.
Wednesday, 17th of April, 1912. Stricken Southampton, a town of mourning, all night vigil. The pathetic scenes in Southampton yesterday after the dread news of the Titanic's foundering had been confirmed would have moved the hardest heart to compassion. All day long there was a crowd outside the White Star offices composed for the most part of men, although later in the day numbers of women, many with babies in their arms and toddlers hanging around their skirts, hardly knowing, knowing the meaning of the crowd but vaguely aware that something untoward had occurred to Daddy. As darkness grew, the crowds increased, both outside the White Star Line and the West Gate. It was an impressive and withal pathetic scene. Today, Southampton is a town of mourning. In many streets, in almost every house, the breadwinner was on board the ill-fated Titanic, and numberless, and numberless homes will be bereft. The White Star Line offices in Canute Road remained open all night, and through the dark watches, the patient crowds in their vicinity and outside the main dock gates maintained their mournful vigil, but no further news came through. It took a long time for news to filter through. They certainly knew by the 16th what had befallen Titanic, but whether or not there would be survivors, whether or not dead could be quickly identified, was something that they were to have to wait for for the next three days, as we shall see. Wednesday, 17th of April, 1912, late edition. With the fateful list of names, the publication of which would dispel the joyousness of, or, of relief or shatter the last hope, never come through? The period of waiting seemed interminable. The golden sunshine which flooded Deckhand only emphasised the contrast between life and death. There are few streets in the town that have not given their toll. In Britain Street, it is said that nearly every house contributed its quota to the crew of the sunken liner, and in one street, in Nichols Town, there are 20 distinct households hoping against hope that their loved one or ones are amongst the survivors. From time to time, women with reluctant steps and backward glances uh, detached themselves from the crowd and went home to get tea for the children, who are all too probably orphans. But the new arrivals on the scene more than compensated for their absence, and by four o'clock, the crowd had assumed its largest dimensions since the news of the disaster leaked through. Day after day, the relatives would gather at the docks. Fortunately, that was something that, due to the letter, um, my great-grandmother was familiar with precisely where the White Star Line shed was in Canute Road. But I can imagine that every day she would do the same thing, have a look at the great blackboard outside and see whether or not names would, had yet been posted up. And we continue. Thursday, 18th of April, 1912. The agonising wait scenes outside Southampton White Star offices. Yesterday was practically a repetition of Tuesday. Throughout the day and up to a late hour, haggard-faced men, haggard men and women, mostly the latter, made their way through the crowd into the office to make inquiries for their dear ones. But to each, the answer was the same, no news although all were informed that they would be told should any come. It was a strange sight, this crowd of grave, silent men and women, waiting for the yearned-for tidings that might never come. Men and women waiting for a name, just one word or two that meant to them the whole wealth of difference between life and death. The words that may be written on the board during the coming hours will decide 
What wives will be widows? What children orphans? And what sweethearts forlorn? So bear with me a little bit. We're fairly near to the time now when they do get to learn precisely what names are there and by the absence of names, what has probably befallen their husbands and loved ones. Friday, 19th of April, 1912, the anguish of the crowd. The mental torture which is being so bravely borne by the stricken families of Southampton reached its climax last night. Between 6 and 7 o'clock, the excitement and anxiety grew in intensity for the first message had arrived. The first few names went up, but it was only too apparent that they were not the names of Southampton's sons. List after list came, but the English names in the first hundred could be counted on the fingers of one hand. A sob of disappointment broke from the hearts of the waiting hundreds, but still they continued their faithful vigil for an hour, with nothing to break the awful monotony of it. Slowly, reluctantly, with many a backwards glance at the twinkling lamps illuminating the fateful blackboard, the majority of the crowd melted away. The distress in a few days' time must be terrible, for the vast majority of the women absolutely rely on the half-pay they receive each Monday. The Mayor's Fund is increasing by leaps and bounds each hour, but every penny will be needed. It is difficult to realise the magnitude of the calamity, but in the Northam Council School alone, 125 children are dependent upon parents and relatives who were on board the Titanic. By the end of the 19th and the morning of the 20th of April, they pretty much know now what has happened. Friday 19th of April 1912, how the Titanic met her doom. By Friday afternoon, clearer news had been received from New York. Iceberg reported too late. Ship ripped from stern to stern, went the headlines. The great liner went down with a band playing, taking to death all but 775 of the human cargo of 2,340. To this must be added six, five of whom died on the Carpathia. I think the papers say it probably more eloquently than I could. Saturday, 20th of April 1912, distress at Southampton. In, companion with the, in comparison with the crowds that have thronged through Canute Road during the last few days, there are only a small number of people gathered outside the White Star Line offices this morning. The worst fears of many a wife, mother and child were realised yesterday and a deep gloom has settled down over the streets wherein the seafaring population have their homes, a gloom no longer relieved by a ray of hope. Not everything was quite so morbid. A whole community was moved, a nation was moved, many nations were moved, and funds were set up. The Lord Mayor of London set up a fund, and in association with the Mayor of Southampton, a Titanic relief fund was set up. Into that, many people subscribed. Lots of organisations, seafaring unions and other unions, and indeed the acting community. One of the advertisements in the same paper, is from the Grand Theatre, where Lady Beerbohm Tree and Mr Kenneth Douglas and members of the Chalk Line Company are giving 25% of next week's gross takings to the Mayor's Fund in aid of the widows, orphans and dependents of the crew. Of course, you can always rely on some things, like the good old tabloids. I, 
Can imagine the newspaper seller crying out now for a full report of Titanic disaster and survivors' thrilling stories. See Sunday's News of the World, best weekly paper. News filtering through to the White Star Line company themselves wasn't magnificent in the early age of wireless telegraphy. There, they were reliant upon information being passed across that would sometimes take a long time. So. We have a letter from the 16th of April, from the headquarters of the White Star Line, which was actually in Liverpool, where they were registered. Titanic itself is registered as belonging to the Port of Liverpool, although operating from the Port of Southampton. And the letter goes, "Dear Sir, further to our communication of yesterday, we were extremely sorry to have to send you the following wire this morning." Referring to telegraphs yesterday, Titanic deeply grieved. Say that during the night we received word steamer founded, about 675 souls, mostly women and children, saved. We now beg to confirm, although it was quick to sort out who had been saved, because it would only be those who had made it into lifeboats. I doubt any more than an hour, if not less, in the water would have meant that. People would have died of hypothermia and drowned subsequently. It was that cold. The process of picking up the bodies, which we'll see in a moment, took quite some time, and it's that for that reason that this letter was only received on May the 17th by my great grandmother, to Mrs. F. Woodford, 14 Clovelly Road, Southampton, May 17th, 1912. Madam, we beg to inform you that the body of F. Woodford was recovered by the cable steamer McKay Bennett and was buried at sea. Estimated age 38, brown hair, moustache, British Seafarers Union number 1802. So that's fairly final. The White Star Line chartered two cable-laying vessels from Halifax, Nova Scotia, the Mackay Bennett and the Minia, to search the area and recover what bodies they could. Mackay Bennett arrived on the scene on the evening of Saturday, the 20th of April. Minia followed on the 26th of April, and later two further ships, the Mormagny and the Algerine. Were hired to search further. In total, 328 bodies were recovered, of which 209 were brought back to Halifax. Mackay Bennett being responsible for 206 of them. Bodies were numbered and described, and details of personal effects taken down. And it's from that, and that's what White Star Line were waiting for, before they would then send their letters to the relatives. So, you can imagine having to wait a month for such news without having any finality would have been quite something. When there is an absence of a body, even if it, a body is buried at sea and has been identified, the Registrar General will not process a death certificate. The body has to be on dry land. As a result, unfortunately, Frederick Woodford was not processed with a death certificate, and you won't find them for those、uh, who died on the Titanic. However, the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen maintain a registry of deaths at sea, and this is taken from that BT three three four, and we have the entry here for Woodford F. Greaser from Hampshire, fourteen Clovelly Road, and you get the details regarding the Titanic, its official number, etc. Note that it doesn't appear in the registry until June 1912. Those looking for a Titanic ancestor, you'll have to go to that month and to the end of that month 
in order to pick that out. Okay, so we know what happened. What was its effect on the pockets of communities in Southampton? Well, Frederick Woodford was from Newtown. And I've drawn here a map of Newtown adapted from the 1911 Ordnance Survey map of Southampton East. A red square indicates households where a crew member died and a blue square indicates households where a crew member survived. Of 50 crew residing in Newtown, 37 lost their lives, 12 survived and one deserted. According to the 1911 Post Office Directory for Hampshire, Newtown comprised the wards of Nicoltown and Queensland and was a new self-contained pocket community. Situated in the east of Southampton, above the docks and St Mary's Ward, and to the left of Northam on the banks of the River Itchen, with its wharves and boatyards, it was a convenient location for many of the merchant seamen residing in the city. Separated from Northern by the South Western Railway line, it was less prone to flooding than its neighbour, but still, at, a time, at the time, a rather insalubrious place to live. Sickness and disease such as tuberculosis, pneumonia, diphtheria and scarlet fever were rife, and the majority of the population would have been hard-pressed to pay for the necessary medication to treat the symptoms. Nevertheless, residents could avail themselves of the nearby hospital in Fanshawe Street, the Royal South Hans and, Ham- and Southampton Hospital, and general practi- practitioners in St Mary's Road and Derby Road. There was a ladies' school in Cranberry Place, a primary and secondary school in Argyle Road with a capacity for 1,629 boys, girls and infants, and the nearby York, York Street School, Northam, with a capacity for a further 1,700 pupils. There were public houses in Alfred Street, the Chamberlain Arms, and St Mary's Road, the Criterion and the Oxford, and several beer retailers. There were numerous shops, especially in the vertically running St Mary's Road, Northumberland Road and Derby Road including newsagents, butchers, bakers, bootmakers, dressmakers, milliners, tailors, fishmongers, grocers, drapers, greengrocers, chemists, cycle makers, booksellers and binders, confectioners, artificial teeth makers, presumably after you've eaten the confection, florists, hotels, auction rooms and a working man's club. In Clavelli Road itself could be found the sub-post office and the Southern Counties Dairy. So you can see it was hugely a community and what effect must have been had on that community where every street you have the loss of lives in a few houses. Everyone would have known somebody who had died on board the ship. When we expand the map out, you can see where Northam lies in comparison with the Newtown ward, and they're just above the docks, and Northam has lots of small boat-building communities and wharves. In Northam, of 30 crew, 26 lost their lives and four were saved. The worst affected residence, though, was the sailor's home in Oxford Street, in Southampton Central, where there were 24 crew residing in there just before Titanic. 17 lost their lives and seven were saved. What about the school children? Well, again, something that says it far more eloquently than I can is the log of Northern Girls School. This is held at Southampton City Archives. Let me read you some extracts. 1912, April the 15th. A great many girls are absent this afternoon owing to the sad news regarding the Titanic. Fathers and brothers are on the vessel and some of the little ones in school have been in tears all afternoon. April 17th. I feel I must record the sad aspect in school today owing to the Titanic's disaster. So many of the crew belong to Northam and it is pathetic to witness the children's grief and in some cases hope for better news. The attendance is suffering. May 7th. I have distributed clothes to the children who were bereft through the Titanic disaster. On May the 23rd, the mayoress visited the department this morning regarding the orphans of the Titanic victims. June the 28th, two extra cases of diphtheria are reported today. 
there are now 74 cases of infectious disease. We'll see how this comes to play later and the reason why I'm showing them. February the 20th, the sickness, pneumonia and rheumatism among the children consequent to the recent floods causing damp in the houses is very great. Northern was on a lot of land that was reclaimed from the River Itchen. So you can imagine that uh, every time you got big high tides, there was a big problem for them. On the anniversary of the disaster, April the 15th, today being the anniversary of the Titanic disaster, a great many girls are away on account of mother's illness and grief in the homes upsetting the children. It is a sad echo of last year. So what was done to alleviate this suffering? We spoke about a fund being set up, the Mansion House Subcommittee Titanic Relief Fund. The minute books are again in Southampton City archives. Unfortunately, the first minute book doesn't survive. But minute book number two commences on the 18th of November 1912. At that point, the board comprised of 20 members, including the mayor, the lady mayoress, and Mrs. Lightoller, husband of second officer Charles Herbert Lightoller, uh, who survived the sinking. By March 1913, £413,202 had been subscribed, as well as direct grants to dependents. The fund also dispensed apprenticeship grants and paid school fees, especially for secondary schools, allowing children to stay in school longer, receive a better education, and hopefully lift themselves out of poverty. For example, in June 1923, the committee discussed raising apprenticeship allowances from 20 to 30 pounds a year, which is not bad in those days in 1923, due to a surplus in the fund of 28,481 pounds over the valuation made in 1922. So every time that they would estimate for a year what they had, they tended to end up with a surplus that they would then redistribute. Money was also set aside for medical treatment, eye and dental care, over and above the weekly grants that were allocated. There were three priests on the panel, and the committee, being anxious that money from the fund should not be abused, were inclined to take certain moral and spiritual decisions. Take the case of Mrs Biggs. Mrs Biggs, case 30, and everyone has their own little case number, was the mother of fireman Edward Charles Biggs. On the 29th of January 1914, the committee reported that Mrs Biggs had again been in front of the magistrates on a charge of drunkenness, and it was decided to suspend her allowance for a period of three months. I think I would have doubled her allowance myself. <laughs> On the 23rd of April, 1914, they decided that Mrs. Biggs be reinstated to the fund an allowance of two shillings a week, the money to be expended for her benefit and not given in cash. The way they organised it was quite hierarchical. Remember I told you about Dex A to G? Well, funnily enough, we have classes A to G of payments made from the Titanic Fund, with class A being officers and engineers, where a widow would receive two pounds per week, and children seven shillings and sixpence, class B, saloon stewards and bedroom stewards, class C, lower class stewards, catering, boots, bakers, bedroom stewards, certain stewards make their way into various categories, as you'll see with class D, which has now gone down to one pound for widows, and three shillings and sixpence for children. Class E for certain stewards, for senior firemen, 17 shillings and sixpence, children getting two shillings and sixpence. Class F, where my family found themselves, is for greasers, a widow getting 15 shillings and a child two shillings and sixpence. And finally, Class G, firemen, scullions, and lower class stewards getting 12 shillings and sixpence, with the children two shillings and sixpence. The fund also set 
various rules as to how long the payments would continue. Allowance to a widow shall cease upon her remarriage. Again, we'll see how this plays when we get to view how it affected the Woodfords. Allowance to all children shall cease in the case of males at 16 and in the case of females at the age of 18. No allowance shall be made to a dependent other than the widow over the age of 70. Allowances to dependents other than widows and children to cease for a person under 30 three years from the date of commencement of the allowance and for a person aged 50 to 70 until such time as they reach the age of 70. So you can see that they were looking very carefully at how they would manage the fund and how they could make it longer lasting for certain people who would need it more by dint of age, perhaps. The main fund was reconstituted in 1916 to include victims of the Empress of Ireland and the Lusitania tragedies, and was finally wound down in 1959, any residue being dispersed among the National Disaster Fund recipients. At the risk of boring you to tears with my family history, I'll give you a few snippets that can be found from the fund minute books because they're rich in detail for the Titanic victims. So we have on the 29th of May 1914, Mrs Woodford, widow, two pounds. Mrs Woodford to be sent to Dollinghome in Worthing for four weeks and Susan Woodford, daughter, aged seven years, to be sent to John Horniman home at Worthing for a similar period. 17th of July, 1914. One quart of milk per day for 13 weeks to Mrs Woodford. Again, money was set aside for various essentials. 18th of September, 1914. May Woodford, daughter, that's Susan, Susan May, the names were interposable, and so it's confusing sometimes when you get them in this way. It's a trait that, on many sides of the family, where they tend to prefer adopting the second name rather than their first. May Woodford, daughter, to remain at Southbourne Convalescent Home, and Mrs Woodford returns from Shedfield Convalescent Home. Three shillings to Mrs Woodford, extra expenses for getting to the home. At the same meeting, Anna F. Annie Frieda Woodford, daughter, died 13th of August 1914. None of the convalescent homes survive, but there is still a John Horniman Museum and Foundation. John Horniman was a prosperous tea merchant who, among his many endowments during his lifetime, built a convalescent home in Worthing where 50 poor children from the crowded cities could enjoy the sunshine and breezy air of the southern coast. Although, of course, Southampton is on the south coast, um, the city wasn't quite the same whatsoever. Further payments in 1914 are made to Mrs Woodford when it occurs on the 20th that the urgent necessity for treatment in a sanatorium, having been reported in the case of Mrs Woodford, widow, it was decided to recommend Mrs Woodford to avail herself for treatment given at the municipal dispensary. What follows then is this particular entry. Woodford, case 273 that by reason of the child becoming an orphan on the death of the mother, the scale allowance of two shillings and sixpence per week be increased to five shillings in accordance with the scale, and that in addition Mrs Pierce, we met earlier, the child's grandmother, be placed on the fund as a new dependent, personal dependent mother-in-law, class F, at two shillings per week until she attains the age of 70. So at that moment, having just lost her sister, my grandmother was to lose her mother as well. This is the death certificate of her sister, Annie Frieda Woodford, who died of diphtheria and exhaustion. 
Her mother died of pulmonary tuberculosis, for which she'd been suffering over four years. You can trace through successive years the continuance of allowances in the Titanic Fund minutes until they finish with the entry in 1931, where an allowance has been set up for 1932. At that stage, my grandmother was a young lady. She had reached the age of 25, so uh, was no longer could no, no longer qualified for the Titanic Fund money, but also had received a good schooling and education, and we shall see aspects of that. One of the things that Titanic Fund did, we mentioned, was apprenticeships. Well, Titanic paid for my grandmother to receive piano lessons. She became, in turn, a teacher of piano forte, and uh, also played piano in cinemas in Southampton. The money enabled my grandmother to have a far happier childhood. She was able to continue her schooling. She was looked after initially by her grandmother. Elizabeth Pierce, though, died shortly after that. And so her surviving aunt, Elizabeth, then looked after her. It's they who set up in Totten. And it's in Totten at school where she met my great, my, my grandfather, Reginald William Cronin. They were married on the 2nd of September 1933. So, all of that would have been fine. Things got a lot better. But the one thing that was always unfortunate for my grandmother is that the letter had come through from the White Star Line saying, your, saying to, to her mother that her husband's body had been recovered by a ship and was buried at sea. So as far as she was concerned, there was nothing she could do. There was no grave she could visit. As it turns out, that was wrong. Here we see a shot from the Fairview Cemetery in Halifax, Nova Scotia, because the McKay-Bennett did indeed recover Frederick Woodford's body. It was all duly noted down. The body was taken back to Halifax, Nova Scotia. They, however, did spend the best part of 90 years not having marked his grave through various clerical errors, so it was never known, and my grandmother died not knowing that. And it's at this point that I'm going to take up the story in the words of my cousin Virginia, who visited Halifax, Nova Scotia, without knowing, actually, that there was uh, a grave for Frederick there. She had an interest in maritime matters and also an interest in things with a Titanic connection and knew that there was a connection with Halifax, but not necessarily that what she was going to find. This is an extract from a letter that she wrote to uh, Mr. Jack Eaton of the Titanic International Society, who was here last week and I wish I'd had the opportunity to speak to. And you'll find out why in the course of this letter, which is almost the end. Virginia wrote, 
My family and I believed my great-grandfather, Frederick Woodford, had been drowned on the Titanic, recovered by the cable steamer McKay Bennett and buried at sea. As a descendant of Titanic victim, I had naturally been drawn to museums and exhibitions relating to the great ship. In 2002, my husband and I decided to visit Canada, and one of the places we stayed at was Halifax, which we knew had a Titanic connection, being the place where the recovered victims were brought. However, as my great-grandfather was buried at sea, this fact was not of apparent interest. We visited the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic and discovered that the victims who had been brought to Halifax had been buried in a special section of the city cemetery. In the hope of finding a general memorial to all victims of the Titanic, a sort of war memorial, we walked all the way to the cemetery. It's a long way on foot and many times we thought of giving up our wild goose chase as we wandered through the suburbs of Halifax. Eventually we got to the cemetery and began to read the information boards uh, about the Titanic section. As we read down to the final paragraph, we suddenly made the momentous discovery. My great-grandfather had not been buried at sea after his discovery by the McKay Bennett, but was lying only a few yards away from where we stood. I was the first of his descendants to visit his grave, almost exactly 90 years to the day that he was buried there. Sadly, my grandmother died in 1985, never knowing that her father had been buried in Halifax. This was particularly poignant, as she had once told me, how sad it was that she had no grave to visit. Her mother's and siblings' graves were removed by Southampton City Council. Little did she know that her father's unknown grave existed. A little poignant addition to that is that Elizabeth Anstey, my grandmother's grandmother, was born in Newfoundland. So had they known, that connection was actually very, very close there. Jack Eaton sent a very nice reply, which I shall close with. Your great-grandmother's loss in 1912 was compounded by the fact that Mr. Woodford's identification body, number 163, and disposition were known from the start. A handwritten entry on an annotated body, recovered, body recovery list in my possession shows under Mr. Woodford's name that a burial permit was issued on May the 2nd, 1912, and that a burial, and that burial was at the Fairview Cemetery on May the 6th. The letter to your great-grandmother's uh, great-grandmother demonstrates the extreme confusion that existed immediately following the disaster. And it's there that I'd like to end. Thank you for listening so patiently. I appreciate that not everyone is going to be as fascinated by my family as I am. I hope it's given you some moments of interest, however. And uh, thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 14th of April, 2009, at the National Archives, Kew.